You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, all this cold weather uh, reminded me of a time in my life uh, some time ago that I just hadn't thought about in a long time. Uh, I grew up in West Michigan where, man, they see snow and cold there quite a bit in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the suburbs, right, suburban area. But uh, I had this really strange situation in my house that I didn't know was strange until later in life, and that is that the heater, the furnace in our house, it was one of those home alone basement furnaces with all the pipes coming off. It was terrifying in the, in the dank basement. Um, it was a combo heater where it could flip between using uh, propane and uh, burning wood. Has anyone else ever run into that before? Or is it as strange as I feel like it actually was. At the time, I thought it was perfectly normal. But what that meant was my dad, um, on his pastoral ministry salary, uh, had a huge incentive to go find wood and, and supply this heater with wood. And so he started this side hustle where he would just offer to cut down trees for people. If you had a tree that needed to come down, he'd happily come do it, remove it for free, uh, and bring all that wood home. Guess who got to be involved with that? <laughs> this guy. Uh, and guess who really hated it? Uh, a lot when dad would say, hey, time to go take down a tree. Because, uh, you know, I was like single digits at the time in my age. Like I was not a big, uh, you know, at, at that time I was, I was still a young kid. And so I didn't even get to play with the cool chainsaw. Uh, I was just carrying the gas and the oil and then lugging wood around and getting splinters and blisters. And I genuinely did not enjoy it. Right. And so I often thought of my dad in those moments as just almost being abusive. Like it just felt terrible. Why would you ask a kid to be involved with that until I got older? Um, And as I look back on it as a dad, um, I started to be able to see some layers to this that I was not capable of seeing as a kid. That maybe on some level, my dad was trying to infuse something into me that was good and worthwhile and necessary. What it means to be a man, to be a husband, to be a father, you know, to see, to understand the connection between the wood carried equals money saved, which translates to Christmas gifts, right? Stuff I just couldn't see at the time, the economy of that situation. You know, but then there was another layer that as I really thought about it, you know, I find myself thinking, shoot, I wonder if on some level I missed in my mind and my attitude an opportunity to participate and experience my dad participate in and experience my dad's heart. The the joy and the goodness and the wholeness of work. And the ethic of provision and and all of that stuff. And so I wonder if because of my angsty attitude about that experience, I missed an opportunity to connect with my father's heart. Why do I bring that up? Because I think that's exactly the opportunity we have today in Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven, as God confronts us with the issue of submitting to governing authorities. Because if you're like me, and I have wrestled with this text over the years, wrestled, I mean hard. Uh, And if you're like me for so much of my life as it relates to this text, for God to say submit to governing authorities feels a little bit like my dad on a cold November afternoon saying, throw your boots on, we're going to go cut down a tree and you're going to lug wood all day. It can feel wrongheaded, even abusive, right? He can't possibly mean that he, that he can't possibly mean what he's saying here. Or maybe there's all these qualifiers to it. Maybe by cutting down a tree, he really means we should go to Dairy Queen and, 
Uh, you know, and, and, and we wrestle with a text like this, but Matt, can I invite you to this idea that struck me some time ago that maybe instead of a hard text that uh, we struggle with, or maybe part of the reason we struggle with it is we framed it poorly. And we failed to recognize that this is not really a conversation about a theology of civil authority so much as it's a conversation about being invited into the heart of God. How can I say that? Well, because, I don't know if you realize this, but part of God's nature is submission. I I tried to unpack that a little bit in my e-note this week, uh, and if you didn't read that, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard someone say that. Maybe you feel like I did when it first occurred to me, scripturally speaking, that when you're talking about God, if you're going to describe him, you don't really have an accurate picture of him unless it includes the word submission. And you might ask, how can the most infinitely powerful being that has ever existed and will ever exist submit or be, how can it be in his nature to submit? There's nothing for him to submit to that's bigger than him, that's more authoritative than him. How does that work? But if you understand your Trinitarian theology, that God is Trinity, And you understand there's a father, a son, and a spirit. And that the son, if you read the book of John, continually submits himself to the father. Not because he's less than. They're co-equal, co-eternal. I know I'm getting nerdy, but stick with me. His submission is rooted in love, in a mutually beneficial, loving relationship. God is love, and so the son willingly, not because he has to, precisely in the space that he doesn't have to, he chooses to submit himself to the father. The spirit does the same thing. The father sends the spirit on behalf of the son to help us. He's not less. It's what love is. It's what love looks like. The capacity not because I'm less powerful or less valuable or because I have to, but the capacity to put myself under someone else and something else. God demonstrates that in who and what he is. The father will elevate the son above himself, scripture says. Mutual submission. Are you intrigued? So when God calls us to submission, and mind you, it's not just Romans 13. This is a theme through the entire New Testament. You read the book of Ephesians, so many of the epistles. The call is on servants to submit to masters. Wild, right? The call is on children to submit to parents. The call is on spouses to submit. Wives in their way and husbands to submit themselves to the family's needs in their way. It's wild. Did I ruffle some feathers just now? The word submit happens over and over and over again in God's desire and his push for us to live out this gospel love ethic that he unpacks in Romans 1 through 11. And it's all over the New Testament. It's not a selective minor idea. It's a core value to knowing and understanding the Father's heart and experiencing it with him. That's the frame of reference I want to take into Romans 13. Are you interested? because I think that's the proper frame of reference. Two thoughts on this series that we're in in the book of Romans chapters 12 through 15. Just want to remind you, the gospel absorbed is the gospel applied. If we're not living it, then we don't yet fully understand it. Gospel in Romans 1 through 11, properly understood, will come out the way Paul's describing it through Romans 12 through 15, including this conversation about submission to the government. So Romans 12 to 15 gives us a picture of what it looks like when someone is actually transformed by the love of Christ. Second thought, Paul's applications might seem disorganized at first, but there's a purpose to his approach in Romans 12 to 15. He applied the rule of gospel love to specific challenges his original readers were facing and that we all face today. The Romans 
the call for the Romans to submit to a Roman Empire authority, this, this craziness of Rome, was a different context. It was a place that they had to figure out and wrestle. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven first, but also a citizen of the Roman Empire? That's a very similar challenge that we have as we are trying to understand and discern what it means to be citizens of a constitutional democratic republic. By the way, we're not a democracy. That would be insanity. That would be insanity. Read Thucydides. It's insanity, pure democracy. We're a constitutional democratic republic, and that is a different animal. Brings all kinds of questions to bear that this text will not answer. Let me just be upfront. We are citizens of a government in the same way that the Romans were citizens of a government, and so Paul's going to address that for them, and it's going to be really helpful for us. It's not random. It's helpful. Okay? So I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about how the text works, and then we're going to dig into unpacking and trying to pull what value God has for us in this text out without reading a bunch of other stuff in that's not there. That's our challenge today. So let's read. Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Well, then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. See, this point in the book of Romans, uh, up to this point, uh, Paul's talking about renewing our minds. And he's been targeting the way that we think about and relate to ourselves and to the Christian community, but this is the first time we see him clearly scope out and say, how does an individual believer relate to the world at large beyond the Christian community, specifically the governing authorities that we find ourselves under? So he's scoping out in his application. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about this in two moves. We're looking at Romans 13, 1 to 7, and he's breaking this into two sections. So if in your Bible you want to kind of mark off verses 1 through 5 as a section, and then 6 and 7 as a, as a separate related section, all of this is to be understood as one argument, one conversation in two sections. And, and the 1 through 5 section, uh, he's going to say that gospel love submits to governing authorities. And in the, in the 6 and 7 section, he's going to say gospel love contributes to governing authorities. But there's a lot to unpack there. So we're going to start with that first section, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to see that gospel love submits to civic authority. Now, why am I so confident that that's what this section is about? Because the text is really clear. I'm not making this up. I'm just following the literary text as it's presented, as Paul creates it. And so just like last week where he framed a portion of the text with a key word, he's doing the same thing here. So if you look at Romans 13.1, he says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. There's your key word, be subject, be submissive. Same word used all through the New Testament related to these other areas of our lives. Be submissive to the governing authorities. But if you look at verse five, therefore, that's a based on everything I just said, word, therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection. Same word. 
So he's framing one through five with this. This is about submission to governing authorities. That's, that's why one through five is a unit that operates on its own. And within that section, stick with me. I'm just being nerdy trying to show you that the text is what's speaking here, not our opinions. And this is how the text works. Within one through five, he's going to give us the outline of how he breaks that down, what he's doing here. And this will really help rescue us from the confusion that so often gets read into this text to just pay attention to the mechanics. So within one through five, he's going to make two moves. If you look at verse 13, five, the last verse of the section, he just tells you very clearly what he just told us in one through four. He says, therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So these are the two reasons he's going to give us for why we should be in subjection to governing authorities. They're not all the reasons that could possibly be given. They're the two he's giving us because of wrath and for conscience sake. That's his outline for verses one through five. He's going to approach it just like last week in opposite order. He's going to start with conscience and then he's going to talk about wrath. Okay, so one, verses one and two, he's going to talk about conscience. And what he's going to say is this. He says, we submit because our conscience gives us confidence. That's my summary of what he's saying in verses one and two. We submit to governing authorities because our conscience gives us confidence. What do I mean by that? Well, the most repeated word in 13.1, there's two words repeated three times, right? One is God and one is resist, right? Let me show you. What he's gonna say is that God is at work through and above civic authorities. We can submit in conscience with a confident conscience because God is at work in and through and above our civic authorities. Look at 13.1. It says, there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That's his big push. And those who resist will incur judgment, which points to what he's going to talk about next. But for now, he's just laying out a core moral theological reason for why we submit to governing authorities. And the reason is God is involved. God is involved. When you're talking about a Christian's relationship to the local government or to the federal government that, it, that a Christian finds themselves under, it's like we tend to go suddenly deist or atheist. It's like we fall into this, we are the hands and feet of God, which equals all of the outcomes that play out in our constitutional democratic republic rest entirely on our effort. It's like we fail completely to look at this whole thing through the lens of the fact that whatever we run into with government, God is involved in and above and working through it. Despite the injustice we may run into, which, by the way, it's easy for us to talk about the injustice and ignore all the actual justice that really does happen as believers. Can I be that blunt? I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. It's like what injustice we run into in our minds invalidates the justice that God has brought about through a variety of governments, including ours. It's like this switch flips in our heads and we go deist and atheist and just say, well, this all comes down to us. And we fail to acknowledge that God is involved. Now, I know this text is going to stir up a lot of questions about, well, wait a minute. How could God allow this? Or how could God allow that? We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But, but what the text is telling us is that we can submit 
because our conscience gives us confidence that God is at work through and above civic authorities. But, but we can also submit with confidence because we trust that God is at work, even when it doesn't look like it. We can submit with confidence no matter what we run into with a civil authority, whether we're under a Roman regime or the Constitutional Democratic Republic of the United States. Can I say that enough? I'm just trying to educate. I think, I think we lack civics in our Christian body in the United States of America. Whichever one you find yourself under, I can submit with confidence because I can trust that God is involved even when it doesn't look like it. Let me just pause here for a second too and just drive this home. That at the core, what this verse is saying is if, that you, if you are in a position of perpetual inner and out or outer resistance to authority in your life, specifically civic authority in your life, then you are out of alignment with God, his heart, his intention, and his design for the world. Government is good. Have I made an enemy suddenly? Government, the concept of government, the presence of government as a construct is right and biblical. Do you understand that Jesus rules that when he returns he will set up a government and depending on your your eschatology your end times theology you might have different ways of viewing this fact but the fact is that believers will actually participate with Christ in executing that government so as ticked off as you are O resistor of authority guess what you're going to have to do figure out how to do the very thing you're resisting so much Government as a concept and as a construct is from God. It's established by him. And, those, and he gets uncomfortable. Those governments which exist, exist at God's allowance. They are, he distributes his authority to these governments. He entrusts people to rule each other. And that's not happening outside of his sovereign reality. And I know that's where the hard stuff kicks in. What about unjust governments? What about Auschwitz? Stick with me. But I just want you to hear this, O resistor of authority. You who would say that because a government fails to be perfectly just in your estimation, it is thoroughly invalid and I shouldn't submit. You are running counter to God's heart. I'm preaching to myself. Government is from God, and it is a good thing. It's it's necessary for us to have a baseline attitude of submission to whatever government I'm operating from, and I can do that with confidence in my moral, theological confidence, even in a soupy, challenging, broken governmental situation because I recognize God is involved in what is going on. Have I made myself clear? Okay, I'm preaching to myself. This is, this is tough wood to haul. Gives us splinters. But it's an avenue to understand and relate to God as he is. And to share in his heart. So we submit, not just because of conscience, but also because of wrath. In other words, we submit because consequences give us caution. Verses three and four. This is him addressing the wrath question. 
consequences give us caution. This is where I think we can get lost in the soup of these texts and infuse all of our questions and our frames of reference and our assumptions and our demands on what it could mean or what it should mean or what it shouldn't mean. And we get lost and and we make this a theological conversation when really it's a practical conversation in these two verses. Paul's not, I don't think Paul's making theological statements on what a just government is. I've seen people manipulate this text to invalidate other governments, invalidate a government that isn't perfectly righteous. As though God, this is, God's trying to teach us what a government should be. He's not here. Paul's being descriptive and, and, and he's giving a, he gave a moral argument. We submit because of conscience because God is involved and government is a conceptually good thing. That's why, now he's just gonna give us a really proverbial, practical argument. That's what he's about to do here. Don't get hung up in the weeds and infuse more into this text than what he's trying to do. So, we submit because of consequences that give us caution. All right, look at verse 13, three. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Clearly, that's not always true. Clearly. Jesus was crucified by a government unjustly. Clearly, this isn't an absolute statement that he's trying to make a theological statement that government will always do the right thing. He's making a proverbial statement, okay? All right, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And practically speaking, that's generally true. Generally, it is. If you're a resistor to authority, a lawbreaker, perpetually, guess what's gonna happen? The hammer's coming down, and it should, But if you're someone who loves people, loves well, yeah, sometimes injustice absolutely happens, but often the case is that people can't help but notice that you bring value and blessing will come. So really this whole section, verse two, uh, is, is rooted in this question, would you have fear? Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? If that's, do you wanna live without fear of the person in charge? Uh, For a big portion of my life, I've been known as what's called a speeder when it comes to driving. And the thing about speeding is it's a really tense way to drive, right? You're my poor bride trying to have a meaningful conversation. I'm just fixated on the next overpass to see, am I gonna get in trouble? Is it just me? Come on, safe place, right? That's, a, that's been a big portion of my life. When you're a lawbreaker, when you're somebody who's constantly pressing the limits, you're just automatically tense and hyper aware. Do you want to just not have to live that way? Do you want to live in peace, relative peace? Quit breaking the rules. Quit it. Stop doing evil and actually start doing good things. Live out the law of love in your life and guess what's going to happen generally speaking? So what he's going to say is this, 13.3, government is a servant of God for blessing, for good conduct. He says, if you don't want to be a fear of government, then do what's good and you'll receive his approval, generally speaking. This is where we get lost in the weeds, for he is God's servant for your good. I'll unpack that a little bit because he's going to say it twice. So government's a servant of God for blessing good conduct, and also government is a servant of God for punishing evil conduct. That's generally true. That's what it's supposed to be like. That's what it's for. All right, 13.4. If you want to stop being afraid, do what's good. But if you do what's evil, 13.4, be afraid. This is pure logic. 
If you're, if you're a perpetual doer of evil, if you know the law and you break the law, if you press the limits, if you resist the authorities in your life, guess what? You have good cause for fear, right? Because the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Basically, God, what makes government effective is that it has the power to execute justice, to execute its expectations. You fail to follow through and you're gonna get the hammer. You're gonna get the sword. You're gonna go to prison. You're gonna, you're gonna get the speeding ticket, Will Height. Right? It's gonna catch up to you. It's gonna be like that. It's an avenger. It's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I don't wanna get into this. I had slides I'm not gonna use on this because I lost a ton of time. I'm using the New American Standard here for a reason even though you just bought a shiny new ESV, we're just proving that no translation is perfect, okay? The ESV supplies the word God here and it shouldn't because it's not in the original text. This isn't necessarily God's wrath in every case when the government executes wrath. Paul's not making a theological statement here. He's making a practical statement. The government's wrath will come on you when you break its rules. So don't. You wanna be somebody who lives without fear and lives in peace? Follow the rules, be good, be kind, be loving. Don't be grinding constantly for your version of what you expect to happen and you shouldn't have to worry so much about the wrath of government. And mind you though, that Old Testament, God absolutely did use and does use governments to execute his wrath at times on people as a whole. The wrath of God is revealed against all mankind because of sin. That's Romans chapter one. And absolutely the God uses even broken governments to execute that wrath. He did it in Israel. He does it all the time. But this is not a statement Paul's making for you to sit there and live in constant fear that if the government pings you for something that you thought was morally right, but they come after you, that somehow God's executing his wrath on you. That's a broken way to read that. Am I making sense? He's making a general proverbial statement here. So what he's doing is Paul's sharing practical wisdom here. That's what he's doing in this, in this wrath conversation. He's sharing practical wisdom with us here. And here's the reality that I want you to understand. Twice he refers to government as a servant of God. And it's easy for us to, to assume that that means that everything a government does, according to this text, is from God. And that's just simply not true. Because the servants don't always reflect their master's hearts. I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying government occupies this, the, the role of a servant of God. But man, you and I both know it doesn't always fulfill that role. And neither do I in my role, do I? Are you faithfully sharing your faith daily with other believers, with, with people who don't know Jesus? That's our role. We're ambassadors for Christ. How you doing? We don't always do perfectly, do we? You see what I'm saying? Government is in a role designated by God that it ought to fulfill rightly. It doesn't always do that because servants don't always reflect their master's heart. This is no, so no, God's not saying that Nazi Auschwitz was, his, was an execution of his desire. And he's not saying that your, whatever injustice you experience is from God. He's describing government fulfilling a role that it often fails to fulfill. And yet we still are called to submit because we trust God to hold his servants accountable. That's not for me to do. I don't get to hold a government accountable unilaterally as a Roman citizen because it's not being just. That's God's job. Now, citizen of a democratic or constitutional republic, that's a whole other conversation that's really interesting that we don't have time to get into. But the principle here is I am not the judge, jury, and executioner of a government. That's God's job. You remember last week, Romans 12, 19 said, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's not a statement of passivity. 
It's a statement of trust. It goes back to our conscience that God is involved. Guys, justice, listen, gang, justice is something we will not experience fully until Jesus returns. Do you understand? Amen? Amen? Emmanuel. Okay? Come on now. I expect injustice. I don't like it. I resist it. I do what I can within the construct of the situation that God has given me to execute and be the hands and feet towards justice. But I'm not shocked when the government I'm called to submit to fails to execute proper justice. I trust the Lord to hold his servants accountable. Just like I'm going to be held accountable as a pastor and an elder and as a father and as a husband. I carry that weight before God. I'm going to trust God to do what he needs to do with the individuals that are in that role. To do good and avoid evil is morally right in any context, is what Paul's saying, but it's also just a smart way to live. (laughs) Don't be dumb. Don't be dumb. That's what he's saying. Yes, conscience drives us to submit because of a theology that recognizes God's presence. But just plain wisdom says, don't be an idiot. Don't resist government as a construct. Don't be your own judge and jury. Do good. Love people. Look at what he says, Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's a God heart attitude toward even the most unjust regimes. You know, he says this to people. This text applies to people in communist Venezuela just like it does to us here in our constitutional democratic republic of the United States. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you find your welfare. This is a purely pragmatic, good, right-thinking way of approaching Life under a regime, no matter what kind of regime we find ourselves under. Are you uncomfortable yet? Let me grind it a little bit more because Paul's not making this up. He's not pulling, if you don't like Paul, guess what? He's just quoting Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. He's our model for submission to civic authority. Jesus is the model Paul's looking at when he develops this theology, right? John 19.10, Pilate Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate has the gall to look at God himself and say, don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus, as a perfect model, he's not weak, he's not scared, he has a conscience of confidence in this space. He's also not usurping. He of all people has the power, the ability, and the justification to take over this situation and bring justice. But he understands that real justice, the true justice, what we really are longing for in all of our political clamoring is only going to be found in his death, burial, and resurrection. Got it? And so he submits. He acts out of his nature. It's not a weakness. It's not a passivity. It's a theological awesomeness that drives him to submit in that moment. And look at what he says to Pilate. It's just precision in theological clarity. He says, listen, pal. Actually, he didn't say that. Because I think he was humble and he honored the office, which we'll talk about. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. 
He looks at a government executing an unjust action. And his theology and his heart frame of reference is, I understand what's really happening here and it's bigger than you realize. And I'm, tr- I'm entrusting my soul to a faithful creator and doing what's right here. So go ahead. Take my life. What? Ah, if only that could inform our, our election year. <laughs> Powerful stuff. So that's verses one through five. That's all it's saying. You want to shovel more in there? You want this text to tell you how to vote? You're just going to have to break the text and misuse it to get that. There's plenty of other texts that can inform that. This is not the one. The way this text informs our election year is, hey, a heart of gospel, a heart of love is a heart that's approaching this from a completely different vantage point that doesn't have any room for fear, anxiety, control, clamor, hatred, political posturing. It's coming from a totally different vantage point. We're not even done. So much for submission. He goes on and says, gospel love contributes to civic authority. He's just gonna grind our gears a bit. Verses six and seven. Gospel love doesn't just submit, it also contributes. Look at verse six. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing in general. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Taxes and revenue are two different words for two different kinds of taxes for the Romans. If you're bringing that into our cultural milieu, it'd be like pay your income tax and pay your sales tax. Pay it all. Quit whining. Quit arguing. Quit resisting your call to contribute to your civic authorities as citizens of a collective whole that need each other and depend on each other for infrastructure, for safety, for security, to just get to Walmart, you need a road. Whether those ta- There's no qualification here for how those taxes are used, whether it's used properly or not. None of that dictates m- whether I am obligated to contribute according to the civic authority's expectations. Because there's, and I can do that with confidence because I see there's a God behind this who owns all this resource anyway. I know that calls up all kinds of challenges. What if they use my money to do X, Y, and Z? Yeah, Romans use money, Christian money, to crucify Christians. Sit on that for a second. If you operate from a deist or, theist or atheist perspective, yeah, you're freaking out. And I'm not minimizing the gravity of that dialogue for people who are in a constitutional democratic republic who have a say. I'm not minimizing that fact. What I'm saying is relax for a second and trust that my call to contribute is not contingent on my my decision on whether it's just or not, scripturally speaking. Okay? I don't get to take my toys and go home and not play with you just because I don't like the way this is going to go. I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) The intensity here is like, "Eh," because I struggle with this. I do. So we're active in our citizenship. We're active. We're not just giving our resource, but we're giving our honor. We're leaning in. We're investing. We're pursuing the welfare of our community. That's the driving foot, the lead foot that trusts that God can use even broken situations to bring about good. Okay? And we honor the office regardless of who's in it. 
Give honor to whom honor is due. I don't, honor is not due to the presidency because I like the person who's there. Honor is due to the office because it's a representation of some limited but actual authority in our lives in a democratic constitutional republic. I honor the office even if I don't agree with the person. That's a hard one, isn't it? Which directly informs a lot of the rhetoric that comes out of us, doesn't it? At least the attitude, the temperature, the language that we use. Because the authority, as authority, is a good thing, even if the person involved is a bonehead, in my mind. So my honor for the office does not rise and fall based on how that office is being executed and by whom. Can I be any clearer? That's hard. That's hard. Which means if I'm dishonoring, I'm running counter to God's heart. Jesus, again, is our model here. He's our model for contributing to civic authority. Mark 12, 15, they're trying to trip him up about taxes. Easy place to get tripped up. What should we do? This unjust government wants to take our money and use it to do unjust things. What should we do? Jesus looks at him and says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Beautiful, incredible, awesome theology realized, absorbed, the gospel absorbed and being applied. I see God is bigger than whatever they're gonna do with your money. Be a contributor and watch God work. If you read this as a passive, just, you know, give them their money and ignore them, I don't think that's his attitude. I, don't think, I think there's a clear separation in our minds between our citizenship and heaven first and foremost, but it recognizes an actual citizenship here that is the place that God has called us to be, representations of him in his heart. So contribute. Contribute. And here's the problem as we just wind down. Here's the problem with this text for you and for me is that it doesn't answer all the questions. We're not going to get told who to vote for out of Romans 13. So just in case you're wondering, I'm not even going there today. Uh, it's just not a conversation this text is interested in. What this text is doing is laying down the foremost and most basic theological and practical groundwork for how we approach the whole conversation. So gospel love embraces its responsibility to discern. Why do I say that? Because the challenge here is that we're left with a lot of specific situations and issues that we need to act on. We need to make decisions. We need to be involved. Well, how exactly do we do that? Who do I support? Who don't I? How much do I lean in? How much do I let happen? Especially in a constitutional democratic republic where we actually have a lot more influence in outcomes than most people in all of global history have ever had in executing justice and goodness in the world by way of civil society. How do we do that? This text doesn't tell us the particulars. We're left to discern we're left to look at the whole counsel of God and let it inform specific situations as best as we know how that will sway us to act here or to not act there, to vote this way and to not vote that way, to contribute here and to withhold there. There is a lot of complexity that we are wrestling with as a culture and as a Christian community, true? 
This text is setting you up to understand that you and I do not get to escape or abdicate our responsibility as individuals who stand before God to discern for ourselves biblically as best as we can what to do in a given moment, whether that's a voting booth or whether that's the call to military service or whether that's the call to run for office or not or to support this person or that. You have got to make in your own informed decisions and discern for yourself knowing that you alone stand before God for every breath you take and every action you make and every decision you make. You don't have the luxury of someone telling you how to vote and then saying, well, they said I should. And neither do I. Spirit of God is in you, the The word of God is in front of you. And it's your individual responsibility to make your best call. That's gonna lead to a lot of different decisions and a lot of different conclusions, isn't it? Right? This room is full of people who are really wondering where I land. Right? It's a lot of salty dialogue going on. You don't get to abdicate your responsibility to have an informed biblical decision and, and make it. Neither do I. It's a lot of responsibility. I think a lot of the times that we're fighting is because we have been, too, frankly, too lazy to, to do the work and feel the weight of making an honest and informed decision, and instead we just absorb what that talking head is saying and start fighting people who absorb what that talking head is saying. But if we actually carried the weight of discernment, maybe we'd have a little more respect for someone with a different opinion who carried that weight themselves. Because it's hard. It's hard to be authentic and to carry the weight of discernment, but you and I don't get to escape that responsibility. Quit it. As your pastor and someone who loves you, quit it. Do the work and respect the people who are doing the work even if they disagree. I hope you hear that in love. See, when gospel love gives way to self-focus, pride, or fear, that atheist or deist approach to this text and to government in general, we're often tempted to squeeze rules and regulations and standards out of scripture that we hold ourselves to and we hold each other to that just simply aren't there. And we beat each other with verses out of context. And law, it's funny what happens when we lose sight of Romans 1 through 11 in the gospel. We just tend to reduce things like government and this conversation into laws and rules that in our mind are so black and white, and if I just do this, this, and this, then I'll be okay, and if only you would, then you'd be okay, and that's just anti-gospel. Interesting point, a survey of Daniel 1 through 6 in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, where the book of Acts in the New Testament shows faithful Christians demonstrating submission to civil authorities. You see it all through there people operating in office, people who are not in office who have to submit, and it shows you all these cool ways and wild stories of what it looks like for them to submit. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see a display that they display a combination of obedience to civil authority in their submission and civil disobedience to civil authority. You're gonna see both. 
So if what you hear this text telling you is that you always do what the government tells you to do, you're not hearing the text. You're not hearing the whole counsel of God. You look at Daniel. You know why? He, he submitted and he walked right down into the lion's den, didn't even fight it. You know why he submitted to the government in what could have and should have been his death? Because he had done some civil disobedience by not submitting to the government's call for him to worship a false god. Same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They walk into a fiery furnace. They're not even fighting it. They're, they're submitting to the death sentence, an unjust death sentence. Why? Because they chose not to submit. They chose not to obey in submission to the governing authorities. In a posture of submission, they chose not to obey. Something the government told them to do that, was, that violated scripture. You follow? You need to discern. You have to discern. When this is a moment of obedience in our submission, or in our submission, a moment of civil disobedience. I would argue that biblically speaking, the singular rule there is is this violating Scripture? Is this causing me to go against what God has clearly revealed in Scripture? A lot of us in the room want to take that and make that a very big a set of allowances. And I would challenge you on that. But here's the problem with this submission command. It doesn't free us from our responsibility to discern when it is time to obey and when it is time to civilly disobey from a posture of submission. You follow? Discernment. So an attitude of submission and contribution is our starting point for discerning the right response to civic authority in all situations. Our starting point is a recognition of the validity of government from God, an attitude of a baseline norm starting point of submission and obedience. And if I'm ever going to disobey from that attitude of submission, it's got to be informed by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and understand that it's running counter to the flow of our starting point, which is a starting point of submission. Am I making sense? Good luck. Should be fun. But what you'll note going into the next few weeks is that every word of Romans from here on out is going to begin setting us up for how to relate to one another when we disagree about these very things. It's going to give us a tool set for how to agree and love one another and be unified even in a diverse body of political opinions. Even when someone seems absolutely insane to you that they could come to that conclusion, how to love well and how to be a whole Christian community. Sound interesting? Well then come back, because we're sure gonna need it in an election year, aren't we? A Couple quick applications will be done. As we move into this election year, I want you to name one area where you can grow in your submission or contribution as a citizen. Take some time and name one area that you can do that. You need to roll back on your, on your Facebook attitudes, maybe. You need to pray for those in governing authorities. Hey, 18, 21 year olds, you don't get to abdicate your civic responsibility to vote and call yourself mature in a constitutional democratic republic. Do you need to actually begin your research now to develop your own opinions, your own perspectives to inform your vote and then go do it? Some of us need to run for office. Lord help us, we need people. What an opportunity to live in a democratic, constitutional republic and to be able to influence and be the hands and feet there. God calls some to 
pastoral ministry. He calls some to missions. He calls some to the corporate space. He calls some to be at home loving their kids. And he calls some to go in and be a part of the solution. Is that you? Do you need to run for office? Do you need to support someone who is? Love them well, shepherd them, care for them? I don't know. What's your one thing? Identify your next faithful step in that growth area and commit to taking that step. And here's the kicker. Share it with somebody who can hold you accountable. Let's do it. Let's be different this election year, Emmanuel. Let's be biblical, godly, and loving and see what God does with that.